We're in Matthew chapter 21, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your app, or it'll be on the screen. You guys have figured that out by now, but sometimes you just want to write something down in your Bible or underline it, or, you know, it's okay. You can write in there. It's a, it's a tool uh, meant for you to use. Uh, but we've been going through this study uh, called Kingdom Come, uh, walking through the book of Matthew, and today we kind of turn a corner into the final week of Jesus' uh, earthly life. And so Matthew chapters 1 through 20 take us from his uh, birth all the way up through most of his ministry that he did on earth. And then the final quarter of the book, chapters 21 through 28, are all about this final one week of Jesus' life. Um, and it shows the emphasis, the importance on the most significant week in the history of the world, right? That, um, I mean, the creation week was pretty big there too, so I might have to check with the scholars on which one was bigger, both pretty big weeks, but um, it's significant, and so it's almost like we're going into slow-mo, like we're really going to really pull it apart and really look at it in this passage. And, and as an intro this morning, what I really wanted to talk about, we're going to be looking at, um, at Jesus' identity, We've been talking a lot about the kingdom. What is the kingdom like? How, how do relationships work in the kingdom? How does uh, comparison work in the kingdom? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? How do I become great in the kingdom? We've been looking at a lot of these questions. Uh, today, we're really just going to take a look at what do we know about the king? <laughs> what, what is his nature like? What is his territory? What does he rule over? Because the more that we know the king, the more that we understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And yesterday morning, we had uh, our teaching scripture workshop. And uh, man, it was, it was great. We had about 18 people come out here 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I mean, that's pretty impressive that <laughs> the people even got out of bed and came, right? But we had this great discussion about seeing the gospel every time that we open up scripture. And uh, one of the things that we had a lengthy discussion about, and it was really, really encouraging and um, and a blessing to me was this idea that we tend to think of uh, religious people, or when people fall into religious categories, there's kind of two categories that seem to be polar opposites, right? There's the legalists, there's those that say, hey, you have to do everything, you have to keep all the rules, you have to check every box, you have to make sure that you're at church every Sunday, uh, you have to, you know, you have to do, 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 do all of these things, um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the people that are like, oh man, it's all about grace and love with Jesus, and it doesn't matter what we do because he forgives us anyway, so it's, you know, it's not even that important to keep the rules there and even necessary. And so they seem like two completely different ways of looking at the world, right? And you guys are probably categories in your mind which one you fall into more easily, right? Do you fall more into law or do you fall more into grace? Uh, I'm a law guy, right? I want the rules. I want the list. I want to know that I'm checking every box. That's just how my, my heart functions by nature. But the goal is to move away from that. So they seem like opposites. So it seems like, well, hey, if you're really committed to being legalist, if you're committed to doing, keeping all the laws, you just need to be a little bit more gracious, right? You need to move towards the middle. And, and if you, hey, if you're all about grace, that's great. You understand that. But, but you do have to keep some rules. And so it seems like the thing would be to move towards the middle. But really, what the gospel shows us is that those two wrong ways of thinking are really out of the same root sin. And the root sin in both of them is that they think that God's law is this burden, right? That when you open up the Bible, I know some of you are dreading it already, right? Because you're like, what is Ezra going to tell me I have to do this week, right? What's the new, what's the new weight I'm going to sling on my back and carry something else, right? Now there's another rule, right? Uh, when, when we think about the law, like think about, so a legalist says, hey, yeah, the law's a burden. It's difficult. It breaks me down. But, hey, we just got to do it. Pull up your bootstraps, toughen up, right, and, 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 and do it. Just do it, right? The 
the person who's into grace, into license, says, uh, man, the law is burdensome, and I'm not even going to try and pick it up. I don't want to pick it up. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm just going to stay with it. But both of them really don't like God's law. And what the gospel teaches us is to actually take joy in God's law and to take joy in God himself, in a relationship with God himself. It's a completely different way of approaching religion, of, repro- of approaching God, of approaching faith. It, it's to, to take it to heart the fact that God tells us in the Bible that he is a good and loving father, that he is our friend, that he cares for us, and he cares for us so much that he wants us to do things his way because it's the best way for us, because there's blessing for us. Like, it's like, for, for any of you that have kids, or even if you don't have kids, you know how this is, right? Like, kids have their own way of doing things. They're rarely the best way. <laughs> the results of their ways of doing things are rarely, and so a lot of times you let them do it just because you want them to learn, like, okay, you tried it your way, now come, come over here and do it the right way, right? Because this is better. This is, this is preferable. And sometimes you just tell them to do it your way because you're tired and you want to go to bed, and you're like, hey, like, I just need you to disappear, right? Like, go into your bed, and I'm going <laughs> to... So sometimes as parents, we're selfish, but God is never like that. He always wants us to do it the right way for the right reasons because he loves us. And so my hope for you today, as we look at this passage today, there's certainly some convicting things in here that are going to say, hey, man, maybe I need, to, I, I need to reorient some things in my life. I need to think about things a little bit differently. But I don't want you to think about the burdens of the law. I want you to see the picture that this passage is painting of, of the beautiful Savior, the King that we serve, who is worthy of everything that we have in us. And the more that we connect with that, the more that, that his law will become a delight to us. It'll be something that we want to do rather than something that we have to do. So we're going to uh, pick it up in Matthew chapter 21. It uh, begins in verse 1. Uh, and it says this. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went, and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Them being the cloaks, not on the donkeys. Jesus isn't doing like this weird like double stride across two animals, so in case you were wondering, right? Like it's, it's one of the shortcomings of the English language, right? So he's, he's, sitting on, he's sitting on the cloaks. He's not sitting on both animals simultaneously. That would be weird, right? Um, and so it says, uh, uh, verse 8, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. 
Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. It's an awesome passage. It's, uh, it's one that we typically read on Palm Sunday. Uh, for any of you that have been in and around the church any, any length of time, this is what you're used to hearing on Palm Sunday. And, uh, and obviously we're preaching it out a few weeks before Palm Sunday because we need time to unpack the other seven chapters that are to come. Uh, but it's this picture of Jesus riding in, and, and typically with a king, you would think he would ride on this great war steed on a stallion, right? Like with a sword unsheathed, like I'm here to conquer. But instead of that picture, we see Jesus riding in humbly. And, and uh, sometimes you think this is like a total aberration, but it wasn't unusual for kings in that time to ride on donkeys, but they only did that in times of peace. It was essentially a way of them riding into the city to say, hey, I'm not here uh, to plunder and pillage, and uh, I'm here in peace. And so Jesus is very intentionally and symbolically showing them that he's entering into the city of Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace. Um, what I want you to see here today is that, um, that Jesus is sovereign over, over everything, but there's four things that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, sovereign meaning that he possesses supreme and ultimate power, right? Like Jesus ultimately rules and reigns over these things. He, he reigns over everything. <laughs> he reigns over all time. He reigns over all people, and he reigns over every single part of us. So all things, all time, all people, and every part of all people, right? So it's pretty comprehensive. The areas that Jesus has reign and dominion over is pretty expansive and extensive, and, um, and we'll see this as we unpack the, the passage, right? So first thing, all things. Uh, it says in the passage that Jesus had need of a donkey. We know that Jesus was said to be, um, uh, he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, that Jesus didn't have a lot of possessions. He didn't have a lot of things. He didn't have livestock uh, hanging around with him, right? And so he wanted to ride into the city on a donkey, but he didn't have a donkey. Um, but we know that he's sovereign over all things. And so he sends his disciples, and he says, hey, you're going to go into this town. You're going to see a donkey there, um, and you're going to get it, and you're going to bring it to me. Now, uh, people speculate, like, hey, was this some sort of supernatural? Like, how did he know that the donkey would be there? And, and maybe, I mean, he certainly, that was within his power, right, to know that that would be there. But also, this was an area that Jesus spent a lot of time in. Maybe he knew. <laughs> maybe he knew that there was a guy that always uh, tied his cold out there. Um, the miracle was not necessarily that Jesus knew that there would be a donkey there, although he certainly could have that miraculous power. Um, but the thing that I want you to see here is that whatever plans that donkey's master had for the donkey that day were insignificant compared to the honor that it was about to have of carrying the king into Jerusalem, right? That was a much more significant task than anything else that could have been done by that beast on that day. And, uh, and so the owner didn't know it, but in the moment when Jesus came and requested it of him, he willingly gave it. Jesus had made this man a, a steward over that, over that donkey. He didn't realize it, maybe. Maybe he didn't know it, but, but that's the reality for all of us. We don't talk about being a steward of many things, right? But it's like a caretaker. Uh, it's like imagine you had a really, really rich uncle and he said, hey, I want you to come out to, to Los Angeles, and I want you to live in my mansion, and you can swim in the pool, and you can eat my food, and you can do whatever you want, um, but it's still my house. <laughs> I'm, I'm just bringing you here to be a caretaker, a steward. I want you to make sure that my dogs are fed and, you know, while we're away on vacation, right? It's kind of like house sitting, right? So, um, so we need to comprehend that everything that we have in our life is essentially things that we've been given to steward. 
Now, you might argue, well, hey, now, I mean, no, that guy, that guy owned the donkey. He probably worked hard. He probably had a hard job. He probably worked. He probably saved up money. He probably went somewhere and purchased that donkey from somebody else. And so, no, that's, that's his donkey, right? And that's how we, we tend to think about it. But here's the thing. The same thing is true with each of us, right? We, uh, we work. We get paychecks. <laughs> we take that. We go and we buy things. And we think that those things are then our things because we bought them, right? But, um, but the reality is that the capacity to work is a gift from God. That any talents, skills, abilities that you have were God-given. How many of you guys remember the Allen Iverson era here in Philly when he was, uh, right, I mean, a legend, right? But he was not a guy who was known to love practice, right? <laughs> in the game, he would give it his all. At practice, not so much, right? Um, and, uh, you know, there's the infamous thing with him, like, are we talking about practice, right? Like, so he was like, so what I want you to see is that Allen Iverson was not the best basketball player because he practiced harder than everybody else. He was the best basketball player because he had a God-given gift, right? Now, he worked hard at it. Maybe not all the time at practice, but he did work. He made the most of what he was given, but it was still something that was given to him. Anthony used to practice basketball a lot, right? But, yeah. <laughs> But you're no Iverson, no, no disrespect, right? <laughs> we we want to make the most of what we've been given, but it's still a gift from God. The fact that you were born here in America in this day and age and in, in, in this with this opportunity, with all these things laid out before you, that's that's a gift from God. You could have very easily been born four thousand years ago in some remote village somewhere, right? And then you wouldn't you wouldn't be driving a car and you wouldn't have these so I, I want us to see that. Whatever we have, even though we think that it's ours, and, and we should, and we do right to work hard for it, but, but ultimately everything comes back to being a gift from God. And he wants us to enjoy it, and he wants us to use it for our blessing, but, but when he requires it of us, like this man, we need to be willing to let it go. <laughs> we, need to, we need to allow it into God's hands and recognize who the rightful owner is. Uh, A.W. Tozer described it this way. He's a, he was a a theologian of the, the past century, and, um, and he called it the blessedness of possessing nothing. And essentially what he said is this. He said, you can have all kinds of things. I'm not saying get rid of houses and get rid of cars and get rid of clothing and just take a vow of abject poverty. He's saying you can have things, but you need to recognize that they're not your possessions. Right? You don't own them. You're a caretaker of them. You're a steward of them. And when you begin to live life in that way, it's very freeing. Because if it's my possession, then I'm holding on to it tightly. I don't want to let go of it. But, if it's, but if, it's, if it's something that I'm a steward of, and the master comes and says, hey, I need that thing I gave you, you give it with joy. Oh, good, I was holding on to it. <laughs> Here you go, right? It's, it's yours. It was always yours all along. And so we can, we can have things come into our life, and we can have things go out of our life. And we don't, we don't hold on to them. They don't own our hearts. We see that Jesus is sovereign over the gifts that are willingly given, like the donkey, like the coats that people were laying down on the road. This was a sign of honor. They were laying them down to say, like, hey, Lord, everything we lay before you. It, it reminded me, um, I decided when Emma was, uh, Emma's our daughter's 14 years old. She was, um, at the time, she was like five or six. And I said, you know what would be awesome? I should go through the Sermon on the Mount with her and, like, just teach her Jesus' classic sermon, right? And so we're going along. It's getting pretty good. And then it gets to the part where it says, hey, if somebody asks for your tunic, you should give them your, your cloak as well. And she's like, what's that mean? And I was like, well, it's like if somebody 
wants your shirt, you shouldn't only just give him your shirt, but you should give him your coat too. And she's like, no way. I'm not doing that. And she like got super mad and, uh, and like really reacted violently, right? Um, and that's what I love about kids because they, they don't shield things. But we feel the same way when Jesus says like, hey, if somebody asks for your, your shirt, give them your, your shirt and give them your tunic too, right? We're like, I'm not going to do that. I'll smile and nod. But <laughs> in my heart, I'm like, no way. I don't want to do that. Uh, we, we get locked into the, these, these things, and we think that they're ours. They were laying their cloaks on. They were essentially saying, and, and there's this, this symbolism too, right? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they, they were naked and they were unashamed. But then when they sinned, what did they do? They went and got leaves, and they covered them up, covered up themselves. And then God covered them up with clothes. And now here they are in this thing as Jesus is coming in. Essentially, in some way, they're kind of saying, hey, we don't need these leaves. We don't need these, these clothes. We don't need this stuff because you're our rightful king and we can be who we are before you, right? It's kind of this crazy symbolic thing that's going on as they're laying it down and it's beautiful. But then Jesus goes into the temple and he says, hey, I don't want just the stuff that you're willing to give me. I want the stuff that you've grabbed a hold of, like, like real estate here in the outer court of the temple. Like, you're setting up your tables and you're exchanging money, but I need this space, and so <laughs> I'm going to clear it out. See, Jesus is over sovereign, he's sovereign over the things we willingly want to give him, and he's sovereign over the things that we don't want to give him, the things that we hold on to. That's the harder part to hold on to. That's the harder part to grasp. And the interesting thing is, you know, um, what, a couple years ago, I was on staff here at the church. People would ask me, like, hey, are you going to be, like, are you going to have your own church someday? Are you going to be, a, like, a lead pastor or whatever? I was like, I don't know. I know God called me to this. This is what I'm doing. I, I have confidence in that. And when, uh, when our, our planting, founding pastor, Aaron Harvey, was offered an opportunity to go work at a seminary in Kentucky, and we, we sent him out and celebrated with joy uh, that calling on him, uh, I came to those that were making the decision, and I said, hey, listen, I just want to make myself available. I have some talents, I have some skills, I have some abilities. There's certainly others that have greater, but, but I just want to make myself available. I feel like God's putting that on my heart that I need to make myself available if you want to call me as the pastor. And then after a course of about a year process, they ended up calling me into that. Uh, I felt compelled to make whatever I had available to the Lord, and I can see the blessing that's had in my life and in the life of our family because I was willing to do that. And I'm not trying to make myself the hero of my own sermon here, but what I'm trying to, to say is like, when you do it, you know what it looks like. But when you don't do it, a lot of times you miss it. If that man walked out the door and said, hey, get away from my donkey, and then they'd be like, hey, the master needs it, and he's like, I don't care. I don't know your master. Get out of here, right? He would have went about his day. It would have just been another day. He would have never known the opportunity that he missed. He would have never known what could have happened if he had said yes. And the same thing happens with us. There's times when we grab a hold of things and we won't release them to God and we don't know what we've missed. We don't know what could have been if we had said yes. And so my encouragement to you is to say yes. Now, it's easy for us to look at this and say, like, oh, well, that guy would have been a fool to say no to Jesus. I would never do that. <laughs> but this is where it pushes into, into personal territory, right? We begin to look at our budget. What do we spend our money on? How are we doing with our stewardship of that? How are we stewarding our time? How are we stewarding the resources that we've been given? Like I said, I didn't come here this morning to lay burdens on you. But what I came to do is to try to connect you to the heart of, of a king who loves you. Jesus gave up everything. <laughs> In heaven, he had it all. <laughs> and he didn't hold on to it and say, this is mine, but he let it all go so that he could come to earth, 
and he could live a life, an impoverished life, a life of misunderstanding, a life of unfair criticism, and ultimately a life where he got uh, arrested, beaten, and crucified for you and for me. So if he did that, that's somebody that I'd be willing to let go of, of the little things that I'm holding on to in light of his great sacrifice that he's made for me. Is there something that you're holding on to that he's calling to you to release this morning? Thanks for holding it for me, <laughs> but the time has come. Second thing, Jesus is, is sovereign over all time. All of history, all of time. He was the prophesied Messiah, told of long ago. And we had this cool kind of multi-layered, multi-dimensional thing. Here we are 2,000 years later reading about this day that happened in history where Jesus is riding into the city where he's fulfilling this prophecy that happened hundreds of years before where the prophet Zechariah prophesied that this was going to happen. And so Jesus is demonstrating to us, hey, at all layers of time in history, I am sovereign. I'm as sovereign today over everything as I was at that time 2,000 years ago, as I was a couple hundred years before that with the prophet Zechariah, as I was at the, at the dawn of creation. I have always been sovereign. But sometimes we want, to, uh, we want to limit him down to say, oh, he was just a good Galilean peasant who lived a great example. He was a good guy. He said to love your neighbor. He said to turn the other cheek. He said if somebody asks for your shirt, give me your coat too. That one's kind of weird, but I guess that's cool, right? <laughs> like we, we try and limit it down to like, man, he was just a good teacher, and we should respect his teachings, but, but he's not the son of God. Jesus says, no, I'm, I am the son of God. And he demonstrated it by, raising from, by rising from the grave. He was, he is, and he is to come. And, and when we limit him to less than that, and when we try and put him in a box, it's because we're trying to make him safe. The Jesus in a box, he doesn't push on our, our areas that we don't want him to push on. But we can kind of limit him to, to kind of this, this space over here, this religious space in our life. Jesus is for Sunday morning, right? And every once in a while, if I'm in my car listening to Caleb or something, yeah, he's there. But uh, that's where, that's safe space for Jesus, right? This is a safe space for him. But Jesus isn't about being safe. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia uh, were written by C.S. Lewis. It was, uh, they were written as children's tales as ways of communicating these great biblical truths to people across all ages. And, and in the book, uh, Aslan the Lion is the representation of Christ. And uh, so there's this conversation that happens between this little girl and this talking beaver, because it's a kid's story, and there's talking beavers in it, right? But, um, but listen to what they say about Aslan, who represents Christ. Uh, he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He says throughout the, the books, Aslan is not a tame lion. Jesus is not a tame lion. There were people that were really uh, excited about Jesus entering in as the prince of peace and singing Kumbaya, but then when he went in and started flipping the tables over, they're like, man, that guy's got anger issues, Right? On the other hand, there's people that are like, why is he riding on a donkey? He should be on a war steed. He should be coming with a sword. And when he got into the temple and started flipping things over, he's like, now we're talking, right? But, but Jesus isn't either or. He's both. His love leads him to righteous anger. He holds us uh, accountable. 
because he loves us. He's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all time, and he's sovereign over all people. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That's, that's, that's his identity. When they were saying, Hosanna, son of David, come, those are ex- explicitly uh, Jewish religious statements that relate directly to the Messiah. The word Hosanna means save now. They're like, you're the son of David. You're the one they prophesied. Come and save us. You're the one we've been waiting for. But, but what they expected is that he was going to come in to Jerusalem. He was going to purge all the Gentiles out of the city and get rid of them so that the nation of Israel could rise to their proper place in history. But when he entered into the city, instead of going in and purging the Gentiles out, he went in and he made room for them. Let me show you this. There's a, there's a depiction here of the, uh, the temple at that time, and you see the kind of the big building back there in the middle. That was like the Holy of Holies. That's the temple proper. That's where, where, where the worship really took place. That was where the, the, the mercy seat was and everything. And then outside there were some courts where, uh, where the Israelites were allowed to go, but this outer area was called the Court of the Gentiles. And so if, if, if someone who was not Jewish wanted to come and worship the true God of all creation— they couldn't go any further than that. That was all that they were, that was the area allotted to them. And, and instead of keeping that as an open space of worship, they began to set up tables and sell sacrifices. And they brought animals in. And they exchanged money. And so somebody who was coming in and saying, oh man, I've been hearing about the, this God of, of the Israelites. I want to come and worship him. And they walk in and it looks like a flea market. Right? And they're like, Where do, where's the worship? And so instead of purging all the Gentiles out, Jesus said, no, actually what I'm coming to do is I'm coming to make room for the Gentiles. I'm coming to make space. You've got to get all this stuff out of here because I am the Jewish Messiah, but I am also the God of all nations, the God of all peoples. Now the problem was, and we see this over and over again, that um, the, the nation of Israel, they took great pride in their ethnic identity, as they should have. To be a Jew was an incredible advantage. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had the tradition. They had the history. They had the teaching. It was this rich wealth of resources. But over and over, Jesus had to say to them, like, hey, do you think just because you're descended from Abraham that that makes you right with God? That's not what makes you right with God. Having the faith of Abraham, that's what makes you right with God. And so, yes, it's an incredible advantage. And Paul says the same thing. It's an incredible advantage to come through uh, Jewish heritage, and it can be a great resource to you, but your right relationship with God is based on, on a relationship with him, not on your history. And so what could have been their greatest strength and advantage actually became the thing that separated them the most from God. And we see this happen over and over and over again uh, in Scripture. Look at the things we just looked at over the past couple of weeks. He said it's, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Why is that? Because the rich young ruler, his resources were the greatest hindrance to his relationship with God. We looked a couple weeks ago at the, the, the story about uh, the, the workers that went out in the vineyard, and some went early in the morning, and some went midday, and some went at the very end of the workday, and then the, the, the owner of the vineyard paid them all the same amount. And the people that went first thing in the morning were mad. Their hard work, their work ethic, their dedication all their strengths became the thing that caused them to be separated and distant from God. What are your greatest strengths? (laughs) What are the things that God has put into you? What are the things that you take pride in, that you consider your identity, that make you feel like you have worth and value? Jesus is trying to tell us, hey, look, 
I gave you those things as a gift, and they're a great gift, but it's also the greatest hurdle that you have to overcome. If you get driven away from me, it's probably because of that thing that you value so much. So beware. Recognize that you're a steward of whatever great gift, and it's a great gift. But don't let it become the thing that separates you from the Father. It's funny because it says that he, he went in and he purged all these out. And then it says that the blind and the lame came in and were healed. And the children were running around singing Hosanna to the King of David. Right? Jesus actually made enough space that people could actually go into the court and use it for what it was for. To come into relationship with him. The last thing that we see is that he, he is sovereign over every part of us. He's sovereign over all things, all time, all people, and every part of us. This, this kind of serves as an analogy, right? As Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and goes into the temple, it's kind of like a picture of what it's like when we come into relationship with him. We invite him in. We say, yes, come, Prince of Peace. He's humble. He's riding on a donkey. We're, we're celebrating, worthy is the name, right? We're singing it. And then he comes in. And he says, hey, I love you. I'm so glad to be in a relationship with you, but that's got to go. <laughs> I love you too much to leave that in your life. Have you experienced this? He comes in and he begins to push, right? Because he loves us. He loves us too much to leave us in, in, in this separated state. And so he comes in and he starts flipping. Now, why do we do these things? It, it's rationalization. Here's what they did. They, uh, they said, hey, this whole sacrificial system where we have to bring animals and sacrifice in the temple, this is hard and it's difficult. And so wouldn't it be easier instead of somebody having to bring their animals with them all the way to Jerusalem, what if we just had animals here? And they could just buy the animals here and then they could, uh, uh, you know, if they need to exchange money, they can do it, right? They're trying to make it easier. It's like, God, we can upgrade your plan, <laughs> right? But here's the thing. The sacrificial system was hard for a reason. It wasn't like the blood of the animals really purified them of their sins, but what it was, it was a picture to show them the incredible cost of sin. And so to take that animal and take it all the way up to Jerusalem, and to, you know, one of your best animals, an animal that you cared about, you know, your, your prized member of the flock, and then to take it and give it and, and to see it slaughtered, it was meant to be this picture of like, wow, sin is costly. It's expensive. It's messy. So if now all of a sudden they can just kind of come waltzing into Jerusalem like, hey, here's a couple coins. Can you kill that cow over there for me? Right? Like, he wanted it to be hard. <laughs> and this is what we do. We rationalize away when we can't understand what God has told us to do and we can't think of any good reason to do it the way that he told us to do it. Then we do it our own way. And it's always to our detriment. <laughs> because he loves us. If you trust the heart of God, if you trust that he is great and good, and that he cares for you, and that he knows all things, then even when you don't understand why he's asking you to do something, you'll do it his way, because you trust his knowledge over your own. That's how he wants us to live, because he loves us, because he cares for us. My hope for you today is that, um, that you see just a little picture of of the kind of king that we serve. A king that, that gave up everything to come for us. Even his own life he gave up. And so when he asks us to, to hold our possessions loosely, 
when he asks us to believe that he is who he says in Scripture and who he was prophesied to be, when he tells us that our identity with him is far more important than our national identity or our racial identity or our socioeconomic identity or our hipster identity, whatever it is, right? Those things are true, right? We have categories that we fall into. But the gospel has to be central. And when the gospel is central, when that's our primary identity, when that's what's leading us to make decisions and that leads us to respond, then that deals directly with things like racism, right? What does it matter what color my skin is? What does it matter where I was born? What does it matter what country I came from? Like, what, How do any of those things matter when I'm in relationship with Jesus? 